for me to preach on church planning, and especially on the theology of church planning at a church planning conference, seems to me an extraordinary providence. Quite frankly, I am still a little surprised by it. I certainly never sought an opportunity to preach on church planning, nor as I will say, do I feel particularly gifted or qualified to address this subject. Yet this is now, I think the fourth time in the last several years, I've been asked to speak or had to speak on this subject. Now on all these occasions, I must tell you that I address this subject with mixed feelings. My response to preaching on this subject is really a, a mix of wonderment and bewilderment, for I do not feel myself to be a church planter. I have neither the personality, nor the set and mix of gifts, nor the facial hair nowadays associated with being a church planter. And that is why when I was first assigned this subject at a conference several years ago, my response was, well, astonishment. But at the same time, I believe with my whole heart in the biblical mandate for planning and yes, replanting churches. In my almost 45 years of ministry, what is 77 to 2022? I guess it is 45 now. In my 45 years of ministry, I've had the privilege of being in and around and actually involved in a lot of church planning. It may help you if I give you a little summary of my experience. Thinking about that experience will certainly help me to feel that I at least have a little right to address this subject. I have always had the privilege of laboring as a part of a plurality of elders. In the 1980s and 90s, I was one of the co-pastors of one of the most well-known and appreciated preachers in the budding Reformed Baptist movement. We were also closely associated with one of the largest and best-known churches and ministers in the movement. Because of this, I was intimately involved in a number of church planting and replanting efforts while I was the pastor, or one of the pastors, of the Reformed Baptist Church of Grand Rapids. In the 80s and 90s, and I started to add them up, try to remember all of them, in the 80s and 90s, we were involved in planting and replanting efforts in Adrian, Michigan, Minneapolis, Minnesota, SeaTac, Washington, Louisville, Kentucky, Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, Rochester, New York, Easley, South Carolina, Holland, Michigan, and Lethbridge, Alberta. I guess that gets us to about nine. Several of those churches planted other churches with which we had some involvement. These included churches in Chilliwack, British Columbia, Nashville, Tennessee, and North Akron, Ohio. And since leaving Grand Rapids and coming to Kentucky, I've had some involvement in helping to plant a Reformed Baptist Church in Newburgh, Indiana, and helping to replant my present church, Grace Reformed Baptist Church of Owensboro, Kentucky. Now, as I survey this history, I'm amazed that in the history of my own ministry, I, with so few of the gifts associated with church planting, have had so many and various involvements with church planting. I think this shows 
that church planning ought to be the concern of every minister of the gospel, even ones like me who feel the meagerness of their gifts for this great work. It may also show, I think, that church planning may not be exactly what a lot of people think it is. And so without claiming to be a church planner, I will seek to draw on the observations I've made on church planning in my own experience, and hopefully between that experience, enlightened by the scriptures and by the confession, I may be of a little help to you in this hour to encourage you that even though I say I'm not a church planner, in another sense I have to tell you, I think every true pastor ought to be a church planner. Now I think of my theme then, in this address, as church planning for those who are not church planners. Actually, I named it in my file on my computer, church planning for dummies. At any rate, in this hour, I intend to take up three major points with regard to church planning. One, the confessional call for church planning. Two, the messianic mandate for church planning. And three, the proper prerequisites for church planning. First of all, the confessional call for church planning. This is the first point I want to make, and it is that church planning is in the confessional DNA of confessional Reformed Baptists. Here are the words of chapter 26, paragraph 5 of the 1689 Confession. In the execution of this power, wherewith he is so entrusted, the Lord Jesus calleth out of the world unto himself, through the ministry of his word, by his spirit, those that are given unto him by his Father, that they may walk before him in all the ways of obedience, which he pre prescribeth to them in his word. Those thus called, he commandeth to walk together in particular societies or churches for their mutual edification and the due performance of that public worship, which he requireth of them in the world. Here the confession makes clear that the Lord Jesus, on the basis of the mediatorial power given to him for the accomplishment of the redemptive purposes of God, sovereignly draws sinners to himself. But he does not only sovereignly draw sinners to himself, he also, in the exercise of that same power or authority, commands them to walk together in particular societies. We call those particular societies local churches. And thus the confession teaches that the fulfillment of the Great Commission issues in and requires what we are calling the planting of local churches. Now I think the confession is perfectly correct in this assertion and in its understanding of the scriptures reflected in that assertion, and I want to show you this in my second point, which is the messianic mandate for church planning. The messianic mandate for church planning. Here is my thesis. It has to do with the Great Commission itself. It is that the Great Commission is church-centered. The Great Commission is church-centered. Now, as I have said, I think this is usually 
ignored in the way missionaries and others press the Great Commission on the consciences of Christians. And my thesis asserts two things about that Great Commission. They, I think, are commonly, at least often, missed in our day. One, the Great Commission was given to the church. And two, the Great Commission requires the planting of churches. Now, a lot could be said about this, but I want you to consider just those two things with me briefly under the second head. And so, if you're like taking notes, under your Roman numerals come capital letters, and this is capital letter A. The Great Commission was given to the church. The Great Commission was given to the church. What I mean by this is that the Great Commission was not given to individual Christians as individual Christians. There's my heresy right out front for you to see. It was given to the church and to all Christians as members of the church, but not considered merely as individuals. You say, what kind of distinction you're making? I think I'm making an important distinction here, and I want you to hear me out. I feel when I assert this view of the Great Commission that I'm contradicting most of the sermons you've ever heard by missionaries on the subject. How dare I say that the Great Commission is not given to individual Christians? What kind of heresy is this that I have the audacity of asserting at a missions and church planning conference that the Great Commission is not given to individual Christians? Where do I get that kind of stuff? How do I prove that? Well, let me see if I can explain. First, the individualistic interpretation of the Great Commission actually makes no sense if you take it seriously. The individualistic interpretation makes no sense. That is to say, if we really take the commands of the Great Commission at face value, it is nonsense to apply, to apply them to every individual Christian as an individual Christian. Who really believes that the Great Commission calls on the young mother in the fourth row with three little children to go into all the world, preach the gospel, baptize her converts, and then teach them to observe all things that Christ commanded. Who really believes that? I think the answer is nobody. Not really. And she's supposed to do this despite and regardless what her husband thinks or does? No. Second, the individualistic interpretation ignores the original recipients of the Great Commission. Now, what I'm about to say, I think I could prove at great length and put you all asleep doing it. <laughs> I could prove at great length from the New Testament and from every one of the five New Testament accounts of the Great Commission. But for lack of time, I'm going to turn you to only one of those five accounts by way of illustrating and proving my point. The Great Commission was given every time it's mentioned in the New Testament, first of all, and primarily to the apostles of Christ. In their official capacity as the foundation of Christ's church. That's right, in not one of the New Testament passages was the Great Commission given indiscriminately and individualistically to all of Christ's disciples. In each of the New Testament renditions of the Great Commission, 
it was given to the apostles of Christ upon whom Christ's church was built. That's true of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and yes, it is true of the account of the Great Commission in the book of Acts. Please turn to Acts chapter 1 and look with me at verses 1 to 8. Acts 1, verses 1 to 8. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do, to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now I know that this is often applied, verse 8 is often applied to all Christians without distinction or discrimination. But I want to tell you that there's a way of getting there, but it's important, it's really important how you get there. I think in some quarters today it's heterodoxy to deny such an individualistic and indiscriminate interpretation. But there are plain and compelling reasons to do so exegetically. Acts 1, 1 to 8, especially verses 2 to 8, makes clear that it's the apostles to whom the commission of verse 8 is given. Remember, the context is set by verse 2. After he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. And the apostles continue to be the focus of the entire context until you get to verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Verse 2 sets the context for verse 8, speaking of the apostles whom Jesus had chosen. It's these whom Jesus identifies as his witnesses, because this word here, in most places in the New Testament, actually refers to eye and ear witness, and is not used in the informal and broader way that we often use it for witnessing. It's talking about the eye and ear witness that the apostles gave to the resurrection of Jesus Christ because they saw him and spent 40 days with him after he was raised from the dead. And so here the word is not used to refer to all Christians. As, it, as is often the case, it is here also once more used to refer to the eye and ear witness that the chose those chosen by Christ to bear personal testimony to him were given in his resurrection and after it. 
And this is confirmed later in this chapter. Look at Acts 1, verses 21 to 26. The specific meaning of the term witness becomes clear in Acts 1, 21 and following. Therefore, it's necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become what? A witness. A witness, same word as in Acts 1.8, of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias, and they prayed and said, you Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place and they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. Look at Acts chapter 10, verses 39 to 42. In further confirmation of this, notice what Peter says here. We are witnesses. There's the word again of all the things he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. You're not that kind of witness. They were. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify, there's the word again, that this is the one who's been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Please don't devotionalize these passages until you understand what they actually said in their original context. Please don't spiritualize them. What they're talking about is the distinct and special witness to Jesus Christ that the apostles of Christ could bear to him because they ate and drank in his presence and saw the living Lord after he was raised from the dead. That's what they're talking about. But what shall we make of this? If this exegesis of the Great Commission is right, then what? What is the application of the Great Commission to us? You might be thinking that if this is true, then the Great Commission is not for the church. That's not where we're going, and that's what, not what the Scriptures teach. Should we conclude that the Great Commission was given only to the apostles of Christ, chosen as Christ's witnesses? No. Let me be really clear about that. I'm not saying that the Great Commission was only for the apostles and not for the church. Here's what I am saying. I am saying that while the Great Commission was not given to the apostles exclusively, it was given to them foundationally. Or to put that in different words, it was given through the apostles of Christ to the church of Christ. Well, let me say that again. But it was given through the apostles of Christ to the church of Christ. My point is that the Great Commission is a corporate commission given to the church and not an individual commission given to all Christians individualistically. Now, help me explain what I just said and what I mean by it. 
First of all, it's clear the Great Commission was not given to the apostles exclusively. This is clear from the concluding promise to the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 20. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The apostles have not lived till the end of the age, but the Great Commission continues until Christ's return. Thus, we cannot say that the Great Commission was given only to the apostles or to the apostles exclusively. But just because the giving of the Great Commission does not mean that there is an indiscriminate application of the Great Commission to every Christian, just because that's true doesn't mean that there's not an impact of the Great Commission on the church and to those who are members of the church. This does not mean that the giving of the Great Commission originally to the apostles means nothing. No, rather, this exegetical fact is of very important significance. Here it is. The, the Great Commission was given to the apostles of Christ as the foundation of the church. Now, I can't stress that enough. It was given to the apostles of Christ in what capacity? As the foundation of the church. And so, of course, the Great Commission is given to the church, but it's given to the church officially, foundationally through the apostles, corporately. We should conclude from this that the Great Commission was given to the apostles on whom the church is built and through them to the church officially, formally, and corporately. The Great Commission is not given to every Christian individualistically, but it is given to the church officially and in that way to every Christian. This means, of course, since every Christian should be a part of a local church, that every Christian is called to take part in the fulfillment of the Great Commission, including that young mother of three in the third row, three in the fourth row. What did I say? Anyway, Matthew 12, 30 is clear. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And so every Christian is called to the Great Commission. But, 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 as part of the church. Now you see, we have to see where this is going. The whole army, the whole army should be invading Satan's land. The whole army should be involved in that invasion. But the whole army is not the infantry, or we can put it this way. The whole navy should be involved in assaulting Satan's navy and assaulting and making an invasion of Satan's land. But not the whole navy is not are not the Marines. And the whole church is not the Marines. Some of the church are the cooks and bottle washers of the, of the Great Commission. You see what I'm saying? All Christians are called as part of the church to be involved in the Great Commission, but they don't have to feel like they have to do this all by themselves. They do this as part of the church of Christ. And I think that perspective changes everything. They are not called to do this as private individuals, but as members of the church, which is the body of Christ. 
It is the church corporately and officially that is to go make disciples, baptize them, and teach them. Not every individual Christian by himself or herself. Let me put this concretely by way of an illustration that is very near and dear to two of our board members. When John Miller was the pastor of Covenant Baptist Church in Clarksville, Tennessee, when they were doing church planning in Chattanooga, they didn't have to send all the members to Chattanooga. They had to send who? Nathan White. And they had to support Nathan White. And the whole church should have been supporting Nathan White, and hopefully they were. But the point is, this is a corporate, official, formal matter that is given to the church. All the members of the church in Clarksville must support the church planner, but they need not all go themselves. But a second thing is missed by many modern expositions of the Great Commission, and it's this. The Great Commission requires the planning of churches. The Great Commission requires the planting of churches. Frequently, the Great Commission is equated simply with initial evangelism and getting people to take the initial steps of following Christ to make a decision for Christ, etc., etc. Baptism is often ignored by so-called evangelistic organizations. Perhaps even more frequently is the fourth feature of the Great Commission completely ignored, and that is teaching them to observe all things. Teaching them to observe all things. That comes after they're being discipled and baptized. As a Baptist, I believe that people must become disciples before being baptized. Most of you do too. Amen. But sometimes my fellow Baptists miss the fact that the Great Commission not only requires something to take place before baptism, it requires something to take place afterwards teaching them to observe all things. Thorough instruction in the Christian faith, all that Christ commanded, must follow baptism. And this is one of the reasons why baptism must be into the fellowship of a local church. It is the local church and its elders that are divinely appointed means who are supposed to be apt to do what? Teach. It is the local church and its elders that are divinely appointed means to carry out this last part of the Great Commission. Not every Christian is fitted or gifted to carry out teaching them to observe all things. Every Christian could have a part in that in a certain way, but not every Christian is gifted to do that kind of teaching. Where do we see this? Well, consider what happened in Acts 2.42 after the multitudes were baptized. Acts 2, 41 and 42 read as follows. So then those who had received his word were baptized. That day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. After being added to the church, of course, what else? The multitude of baptized disciples continued to be instructed by the apostles' teaching. And this was a direct and complete fulfillment of the Great Commission. 
and especially the fourth part of it. But consider again what happened in Acts 14, 21 to 23. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You see, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. It is clear that churches then were planted as a result of the mission of Paul in fulfillment of the Great Commission. It is also clear that the missionaries returned to all the different cities and appointed elders in each church. Why did they do that? Because they had to fulfill the Great Commission, and it wasn't done when they disciple, baptized, and made churches. It was only done when those disciples were taught to observe all that Christ commanded. There is a divinely appointed school of Christ. It is the local church with a divinely appointed faculty, the apt-to-teach elders of that church. Well, much more could be said. But I hope I've said enough to show you that First, the Great Commission was given to the church, and two, that it requires the planning of churches. We have, therefore, a clear messianic mandate for the planning of local churches. But now I must come to my third and very practical heading, the proper prerequisites for church planting the proper prerequisites for church planning. And here, I, I'm allowing my own experience, not that I was the lead guy or the main guy in these, these experiences, I wasn't in most cases, but here I want to underscore certain important biblical principles of church planning that are sometimes overlooked, but which seem clearly illustrated by my own experience, all right? And here's, and there are five of these things, and here's the first one. If you're going to do church planning, you need a providential and prepared people. A providential and prepared people. Now, I think we imagine sometimes that normative church planting is going into virgin territory with no contacts and starting a church from scratch. Now, I'm not saying that doing something like that is wrong. Of course I'm not saying that. Nevertheless, it does seem to me that we ought not to imagine that this is how church planning is normatively done and that doing anything else is a kind of cheating. No, no. In my experience, churches were planted and replanted when God and his providence brought together a prepared people. I remember the visit to Grand Rapids of the three or four families that formed the kernel of RBC Louisville. I remember the phone call from the four families in SeaTac, Washington. We lost our pastor, please help us. We want to be a Reformed Baptist church. I remember the nine or 10 families from Holland, Michigan, attending our services in Grand Rapids for from 30, 35 miles away for a year or two years until we finally wised up and said, you know, I think 
God wants a church in Holland, Michigan. And many other such providentially prepared groups of people who came to us wanting to have a Reformed Baptist church. And it seems to me that when I think about this in light of the Word of God, that it has a biblical precedent. It has a biblical precedent. While Paul preached and dialogued in schools and marketplaces, in most every city to which he came, there was a Jewish synagogue into which he entered and preached Jesus as the Messiah. Even where there was no synagogue, as in Philippi, he sought out the women who met for prayer, the Jewish women who met for prayer down by the river. We read that shortly after arriving in Philippi, Acts 16, 13, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. And those women, that prayer meeting was the origin and seed out of which the church in Philippi grew. I hate to say it, because it could certainly be misused, but it's literally true that Paul planted churches by splitting synagogues. Of course, the blame for this is on the Jews who rejected their Messiah and should have received him. But Paul planted churches by going in part to a prepared people. And the lesson for me is that church planting often and even usually begins with a providentially prepared people. And I suppose the lesson here for us as pastors is that we should be on the lookout for such providentially prepared people. Don't be oblivious to the fact that over the last several years, you have now four, five, six families coming from that town 35 miles away. Don't be oblivious to that. What is God doing there? They're coming 35 miles, 40 miles to come to a church because they don't have one that satisfies their spiritual gut in their city. What are you going to do about that? Doesn't God want you to do something about that? I think he does. Do we have a people coming from a distance and from a place where God might want us to plant a church? Do these folks show the commitment to start a church? And do they have... In the second place, a specific and shared vision. A specific and shared vision. In the New Testament, there was, in every local church plant, a specific and shared vision for church planting. It was provided by the Apostle of Christ or the delegate of the Apostle of Christ founding the church. He taught them apostolic doctrine and organized the church around an apostolic polity. Now, as a Reformed Baptist, you're not obliged to agree with me just because I say it, but as a Reformed Baptist, I believe that such apostolic doctrine and polity is best represented in the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. Now, I've already hinted that the groups that came to us in Grand Rapids over those years already wanted a Reformed Baptist church. They had heard tapes of Reformed Baptist sermons or read books introducing them to the Reformed faith, and they were eager to have such a church for themselves. And this already suggests the need for a specific and shared vision 
of the kind of church desired if church planning is going to be successful. There has to be, and it's going to take some investigation and perhaps some digging, but there has to be a specific and shared vision for what the church they want to plant is going to be. If you don't have that, just wait a few years and it's going to fall apart, okay? Now, in order to assure that such a specific and shared vision existed, we as elders of the church in Grand Rapids would insist on the adoption of the 1689 as the doctrinal framework for the projected church plan. Now, you see, that seems kind of narrow-minded. Well, yeah, I know it can seem that way. But here's what we would say to the people who came to us. Look, we're Reformed Baptists. We hold the 1689 Baptist Confession. We're not saying that no one else is doing God's work, that no one else is planning biblical churches, but we have to be true to our own convictions. We also are finite with limited time and resources. We're only interested then in planning churches based firmly on the 1689 Baptist Confession. If you want a different kind of church, God bless you, but you're going to have to go find that kind of church to help you plant that kind of church. You should go to such a church for help in planning a church. In order to further provide for such a specific and shared vision, we would ask the group to, at least temporarily, adopt our Constitution as the working basis of the church. We would say something like this then. You need to have an agreed-upon Constitution for this church plant from the start. Once you're up and running, an independent, fully organized church, you can write your own Constitution, but for now, well, let's use our Constitution so we all know the, the rules we're working by here in terms of this church plan. In our day, brothers and sisters, it's important with all the winds of doctrine and all the winds of practice blowing in every conceivable direction to make sure that a projected church plan has a specific and shared vision. I suppose this means, as I have said, very detailed discussions that must take place for those who want a church plan in order to make sure that there is a specific and shared vision among them. We must make sure that some of them don't have an agenda hidden in their hearts, which is going to bring all our labors to nothing when it finally comes to light and splits the little fledgling church plant and kills it. But there's a third thing that I see in my experience and in the scriptures. It's a scriptural and supportive framework. A scriptural and supportive framework. Here's what I'm saying. Churches are best planted by churches. That seems a principle that is often forgotten. Now, I'm not saying that God will not bless and organize into a church a group of people that materialize via a Bible study or perhaps a well-grounded departure from an existing church. I would urge such groups to seek the help of an organized church like the one they desire to start. But having said that, and having made clear that I'm not laying down the law of the Mirds and the Persians, which changes not, is still the divinely authorized method that churches should start churches. And this can happen, of course, in a couple of different ways. I believe that local churches may start churches. 
They certainly are authorized and empowered to do so. That's what we did for many years in Grand Rapids. We had an eldership that often consisted of three or four supported pastors. And the reason for one or two of those pastors is because of the many church plants that came our way to oversee. But I believe that associations of local churches may start churches. I think our confession warrants for formal associations of churches. And one of the advantages of such formal associations is the pooling of resources for interchurch projects, one of which could well be the planning of a local church. Does this idea of churches starting churches have a biblical basis? Well, you know that it does. I don't need to turn you to Acts 13, where Paul and Barnabas are sent out in order to do mission works. And what did that mission work consist in? Planning churches in Galatia, Asia, and Achaia. And so both churches, here's a lesson that we must not forget, both churches and associations of churches must have a fundamental vision for planting churches. But here's the fourth of my five, of my five uh, prerequisites, and it's this, a gifted and godly planter. A gifted and godly planter. As I survey the historical panorama of my own life and ministry, another clear pattern emerges. And this is the importance, as I've just said, of a gifted and godly planter. Now, I use the singular because usually a new church plant can afford only a single supported pastor. And the success of the church plants that I have seen be most successful seems dependent on the kinds of gifts and godliness which God sends in the form of the church planter. It is well, however, for that man to have around him other qualified, though perhaps non-supported pastors, as soon as possible, so that the norm of a plurality of elders with all its advantages is in place. And when I think of the more successful church plants I've observed, I see there a plurality of pastors or elders almost from the beginning. I think of Bob Brown and Jim Sevastio here in Louisville. I think of Craig Sietsema with Mark Chansky there in Holland. You see, the Bible makes very clear. It's not just a matter of my own experience. The Bible, doesn't it, emphasizes the importance of a gifted and godly planner. This should not surprise us. The emphasis of Paul on the importance of pastor teachers is clear in place after place. Acts 14, Ephesians 4. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, and of course we could go on. So the question must be raised, and it must be raised early on in the planning of a church. Who is the gifted church planner? And who are his fellow elders who will be most directly and influentially involved in planning this church? Churches must be willing to give up talented and qualified elders for the great, the great work of church planning. But lastly, fifthly, for church planning, you have to have most of all a powerful and persistent redeemer. He must be persistent, our redeemer must be, because of all the hazards, difficulties, and problems that every church plant is going to face. 
and he must be powerful to overcome all those problems. As the old hymn says, all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One come down. Brethren, pray, and holy manna shall be scattered all around. In the end, in the end, there is no substitute for the Redeemer's ongoing grace in a church plant. There's no substitute for his ongoing power. There is no substitute for his ongoing help if a church is to be planted. Christ promises, I will build my church, and only he can do it. It is and always remains Christ's church, and it always remains true that only he can build it. The confession's teaching must once more be remembered. In the execution of this power, wherewith he is so entrusted, the Lord Jesus calleth out of the world unto himself through the ministry of his word, by his spirit, those that are given unto him by his Father, that they may walk before him in all the ways of obedience. This is why corporate prayer must be written in to the very foundation of church plants. This is why corporate prayer must be a vital and central part of the life of any church plant from the beginning. Such prayer nurtures this sense of dependence on Christ, which is absolutely crucial. and is the appointed means to bring down his indispensable help. Both formal times of corporate prayer and informal times of fervent prayer in small groups are critical if the blessing of God is to be seen on a church plant. Well, I've tried to show you the confessional call, the messianic mandate, and the proper prerequisites for church planning, at least as I understand them in terms of my little experience in the matter. Let me review what those five prerequisites are. You need a powerful, you be, pardon me, you need a providential and prepared people, a shared and specific vision, a scriptural and supportive framework, a gifted and godly planter, and a powerful and persistent redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of opening your word we, we confess once more that the entrance of your word gives light. We ask that you'd grant light to your people gathered here and light that will guide them as they each pursue, as you make it a part of their lives providentially, the planning of local churches, the great work of the planning of local churches across this wide, dark world. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake.